Amen, amen, amen. You can be seated. How's everybody doing tonight? Y'all doing okay? Okay, okay, okay. A couple of you are doing okay. I'm going to need a little bit better than that. How y'all doing tonight? Y'all good? Yeah, come on, come on. Excited to be in the place? I'm, I'm glad that your face is in this place. Come on now, somebody. Man, we are in our fifth part of this series titled, Are You Happy? And for those of you that have been here, you know that this sermon series that we've been kind of walking through is asking this question, are you happy? And the hope of this series is that it wouldn't just be a kind of a way of checking your own heart, but actually giving you some tools to maybe kind of infuse some happiness back into your life. I know for a lot of us, the happiness that we've all kind of experienced is one that's been maybe circumstantial based on good things happening and things going our way. Um, but the happiness that we're talking about, the happiness that I've been preaching about over the past five times that we've been here is a happiness in Jesus that doesn't move, that doesn't change, that is unshakable. Because I believe that this book talks about this life he promised to give us, this abundant life, this altogether different life that is so beautiful and awesome that even on the most terrible days that you could ever experience, there's still life to be had in Jesus. I know for a lot of us, that might seem something that is like completely foreign to you. Something that you're like, that sounds nice, but I don't know what that might look like. And my hope is that through this series that we've kind of hit on a few things that maybe can maybe change your view about this life with God. And so tonight I want to talk specifically about something that I believe is one of the most impactful things that actually impacts the state of your internal happiness. I know for a lot of us, we, uh, this is a, a topic that might be a little scary, one that a lot of times we just kind of push to the side and keep living life. Tonight, I want to talk about getting past the thing that you just can't seem to get past. Tonight, I want to talk about your thought life. I want to talk about how our thoughts can often create the internal world that we live in and how sometimes our thoughts keep us from actually experiencing the happiness that I believe that God has promised to all of us. So if you have a Bible with tonight, and if you want to jump in there with me, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Anybody bring a Bible tonight? Anybody bring a cell phone? Anybody take notes? You know, sometimes taking notes, you can go back and see something 10 years from now. I'm like, wow, I needed that today just because you took a note. Also, you get closer to Jesus in heaven if you take notes. So just, you know, I'm, I'm just kidding. I don't know if that's true or not. But we're going to be in 2 Corinthians starting in chapter 10. Uh, just a little context as to what we are talking about and where we're at in this book. Paul is the author, and this is his second letter to this church in Corinth. He is addressing his public ministry. He's gotten a little pushback from these people in Corinth saying, hey, bro, these letters that you write to us, you're like really like, hard, like you, like you talk all kinds of crazy to us through these letters, but in person, you're real soft and like quiet. And Paul's like, I just wrote this so that you don't get me confused that I'm not that. Anyway, he just comes off and he's like very powerful in what he's saying. And so I think that that context means something to its original audience. It's a little bit different than us. I think that Paul is actually shedding light on a paradigm and a worldview and a picture that I think a lot of us live life like not even thinking or conceiving about. Does that make sense? That he's talking to somebody else about something, but in doing so, he's showing us a world 
that oftentimes we just walk past like it isn't there. Does that make sense? You with me? You follow me? Okay, let's jump in. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3. We're going to be reading three verses, 3 through 6. Verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but not physical, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I want to work from the title tonight, Sit With It. Sit With It. I don't know if you uh, have a neighbor that you like, your favorite neighbor, but right now, this is a moment where you can just touch your favorite neighbor. It could be person next to you, front, behind, anywhere. But touch your favorite neighbor right now and tell your neighbor, hey, neighbor, tonight might be the night to sit with it. Now, now I need you to touch your other neighbor, your second option, your least favorite neighbor. I need you to tell that neighbor, hey, neighbor, I don't know what it is. But you might need to sit with it. That's good. Sit with it. Sit with it. Some of you might know I'm uh, recently getting used to fatherhood. It's a, it's a brand new experience. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's been a real learning experience. Let me be honest with you. This is the thing that they don't tell you. And I'm just going to keep it 100% real with you. Because some of you want kids one day. And let me just tell you. You're going to learn more about yourself than you ever thought when you have kids, okay? Because what I'm learning right now is that all the things that I was upset with my parents about as a kid, I'm now doing to my kid. Does that make sense? Like, it's just like, it's just the way it works. It's kind of like when you were a kid and the lifeguard would tell you stop running, and then you're like, why? I want to run. It's fine. And then you're becoming an adult, and you start telling kids to stop running. You're like, oh, my gosh, I became the thing that I didn't want to be. Anybody? So, so for me... Recently, there's, a, there's just a few stressors in life when it comes to parenting. And this was one that was a almost every week ordeal for me as a kid. And that was this little bitty thing called cleaning my room. And so right now, currently in my life, I have a, a nine-year-old. She just turned nine. And she is exactly like I was when I was a nine-year-old. The idea of cleaning her room isn't exactly my definition of cleaning her room as an adult. Does that make sense? So for me, just to give you a piece of my childhood and what I grew up in, I had a mom that was very concerned with having a clean house. And not in a crazy way, but in a way that she would often ask me, Blake, have you cleaned your room? And my answer would be like, yes, complete lie. I just lied to her, didn't do it. And then she goes, I really need you to go clean your room. And she knew that I was lying. She goes, well, if it isn't done, you need to go do it. And for me, the thing that I would feel on the inside, and this might be you too, there was this question that would rise up in me. Why? Why do I need to clean my room? Because here's the deal that you need to understand, Teresa. This is my room. You don't have to live in here. I live in here, okay? This is my room. If I want it to be messy, it's going to be messy. Everything has a place. Y'all with me? Anybody? I know y'all are in college. This is, this is just for kids. You know, some of you might be in this space. I want to, if I can, I want to give you a little bit of a visual image with what my daughter's room looks like currently. Is that okay? Would that be okay with y'all? If I did that, I'd give you a little 
a little, a little image. So I brought some laundry with me. And uh, yeah, it's a lot, actually. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, and so as an adult, what they don't tell you in marriage is that laundry only gets worse when you have more people to add to it. And if you get behind, it's over. Good luck, bro. You're just stuck. It's just going to be in your life just forever. Like it's just a, a lot, piles and piles and piles of laundry. You're like, I don't even care anymore. I'm just going to wear it. If it doesn't smell bad, I'm going to wear it. Anybody? Anybody? Okay. So some of y'all might live in that place. But so for me, as a kid, and I'm reliving this through my nine-year-old, for me, I, uh, I uh, grew up, had a pretty decent-sized room, and for me, the biggest thing was about, like, functionality. Anybody with me? I would have, like, okay, I got my shoes over here, and they don't, they don't need to be in the closet because what if I need to get them quick? And what if I need to, like, switch them out, like, in the same day? You with me? Like, I don't want to have to open the closet, move stuff around, have to grab it. I want it, like, right there. Do you know what I mean? In the middle of everything. For, as I open the door, have to move a shoe to open it. Do you know what I mean? And others, I, I had my workout stuff, and I'd have it in a corner because it often stunk a little bit. So I'd leave it there. So I was like, I don't want it to touch my clean clothes, my jackets and stuff. You know, you just do the, okay, we're good. And wear it. Do you know what I mean? And so... That, that's kind of how Charlie does it as well, except she adds Legos and dolls. And it's crazy. It's just, it's an it's absolute mess. Looks like a tornado came through. Shout out Frank Ocean. But um, that was, some of y'all got that joke. Um, but it's, it's messy. It's messy. And so for me, my mom, she would often yell upstairs, Blake, have you cleaned your room? And I would say, yeah, mom. And I would look around, and I'm like, it's clean. Everything has its place. It's where it's supposed to be. She would walk upstairs, and she goes, what is this? I was like, well, my shoes are over here, and this is over here, and this is the way I want it. She goes, clean your room up. And it was, it was very, like, firm, okay? And sometimes she would be kind of chill about it, but there are one specific time that she was not chill about it. It was any time that company would come over. Anybody, anybody had that kind of mom where I'm like, mom, I could just close the door. No one's going to like come in here. This is my space. This is not like the living room. This is like my room. Okay. Why do I need to do this? Blake, there's company coming. I need a clean room. If they come up here, I need them to see that your that my house is in order. I'm like, okay, I got you, Teresa. I'm with you. All right, done. And so for me, what I would do, and I don't know if you're like this, but for me, when I was told to clean my room, what that meant was I didn't actually have to clean my room. I just had to make my room look clean. You with me? And so I would, um, I would just, you know, take all the clothes at once and I would grab them and I would, uh, I'd, put them, I'd put them somewhere that in a corner or a closet or like under the bed. Anybody? So, so when she would walk in, it would have the appearance of being clean, but it wasn't actually clean. You with me? And, and then college came. It was a completely different circumstance, right? College came for me. I was an athlete, and, you know, when you come back from practice, you don't really want to, like, addre address anything in your life. You just kind of want to exist. Anybody? And so I would, uh, I would just have it everywhere, right? Just just moving around. And I thought it was cool until I got a girlfriend and she was like, you live like this? And it, for me, it made me interesting. I was like, you know, like, this is just like, the, I, the, I li it makes me feel more creative with my space. And she's like, you're dirty and you need to clean this or I'm going to break up with you. That was the way that it worked. 
And I think what's funny is for a lot of us, we live our life like this, where we're cool with it as long as it's like functional for us, if it works for us. Do you know what I mean? And there might be some special occasions where we actually deal with some stuff, and not that we truly deal with it, we just hide it really well. This is why you get in the same relationship with the same type of person all the time that ends up getting you, oh my gosh, those are red flags that didn't even see them, and they were right in front of you. Do you know what I mean? Am I being too personal? I hope so. And you know what's even crazy? There's some of you that are like super cool with the red flags being seen, but you'll realize that, oh my God, that's my underwear. Okay, let me... You don't want your underwear to be seen, but you're cool with everything else being seen. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you can see that I've got, like, a bit of, like, a commitment issue, and I've got, like, a bit of, like, self-medication with alcohol, and I've got, like, a little, little, like, uh, uh, you know, just some stuff that's, like, kind of normal. Everybody's got something, you know? I'm not perfect. Anybody? But, like, don't look at, like, my underwear, though. Like, you can't see that, but you can see everything else. You know what I mean? And we just like live like this is how like life, sorry, that's weird. It was just like how life is supposed to be. Am I right? I think for us, we live our life as if the mess being present doesn't actually affect our life. That we would rather have the appearance of health, the appearance of having it put together, the appearance that I'm not messed up rather than live in health. That we would rather look the part than actually be the part. Does that make sense? We would rather let people think we're good than actually be good. That's, that's pretty like an astronomical thought that we're more cool with what people perceive of us than what we actually like wake up and live in every single day. And so what we do is we just act like it's not there and just move about our business. Yeah? Oh, it's cool. That that is a huge trauma in my life that, you know, I'm just going to cover that with that shirt and we're going to be fine. And that's how we live our life. That's how our thoughts often lead us. And I think that this life that we've been preaching about, this life with Jesus that's actually full of joy and peace and hope, in meaning is a life where you have to do the hard work of cleaning up the mess. My first point tonight, and where I want to start with, if we're going to be people who actually live and walk in health, we have to be people who address the mess. That we need to address the mess. We got to be able to pick it up as we find it rather than just let it sit there. In this text, let me finish cleaning this up because you can't actually move around and function when it's everywhere, even though you might think you can. That's a word. Paul talks about this in a specific word that he uses in verse 3 and 4 is this word stronghold. Though we walk in the flesh, though we walk in the physical, we're physical beings We are not waging a war that's physical. But rather, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not physical, but they have divine power, spiritual power to destroy strongholds. And I want to talk about this a bit because I think for a lot of us, this is where the Bible gets weird and we kind of believe in like name only, but not actually in how this plays out. 
that this whole idea that there is an enemy against us that we can't see is kind of a crazy thought, but it's actually so core to the Christian faith. You cannot see Jesus and not deal with the opposer, the enemy. Like it's literally what he comes, and do, he comes and does. His purpose was to reverse the works of the one who came to just steal, kill, and destroy. Like that's, his, that's why he came. Does that make sense? And we live our life as if he has, you know, the Satan is just not real. Like there's no enemy, there's no devil, there's no de demonic activity. Like we live that way. That's so crazy because we're smarter than everyone else apparently. But we're not smart enough to clean up our own mess. But yeah, spiritual things aren't real. You know what's so crazy is that a lot of us, we don't recognize the spiritual things at work because we've become so used to different voices in our heads thinking it's just us. Where every time you make a mistake, there's something to remind you of every mistake that you made previous and how everything in your life you deserve because you're this horrible, terrible person. Yeah. Anybody had a thought like that or had some sort of like stray thought come out of nowhere? Where do you think that's from? Do you think that's from you? No, it's not. It's just not. There is an enemy at work that is trying to steal, kill, and destroy your God-given purpose and literally wants you to just not exist. That's what this is about. At the very beginning of this whole thing, he decided he was going to ruin it, and we have been living in the consequences of something that that enemy tempted our earliest parents to do. So if, if you can't acknowledge that there is an enemy who is at work in your life trying to create dysfunction and brokenness in your life, then you are going to miss the biggest part of this. Psychology and counseling and all these things will tell you that you just have some disorder, some mental issue. But the reality is, is that you're fighting a spiritual battle, not a physical one. You with me? I want to make that clear because I, I think if we can't sit in that and just say like, okay, there's something that I can't see that is fighting and waging a war against me because I am made in the image of God and God has purposed me to live in a relationship and to know him. And the whole point of the other one's existence now is to disrupt that and let that not be a reality that you live in. Does that make sense? You with me? If we can't start there, we can't move forward. Okay? So knowing that, this stronghold, what is a stronghold? Some of you are like, ah, that's okay, it's strong and it's a hold. That's a good way to think about it. It's like a strong grasp on something. But a stronghold in its original definition, it is a fortified place of an enemy opposing force that is strategically placed in an area that would cause weakness and easy attacks to another part of a defense. Does that make sense? So if you have like a castle or if you have some sort of area that you're living in, say your world, in like a, an old context, Nacogdoches, and say Lufkin, someone put up something there strategically to cut off everything that would come from Houston. That would be a strategic location to block off things to Nacogdoches. Does that make sense? So strongholds are things that are in the way of, of what you need on the other side, what God is trying to bring you, health, life, joy, peace, patience, all the things. And a stronghold is strategically placed to cut off that supply. Does that make sense? So these strongholds are these things in us, in our mind, sometimes they're a thought process, sometimes they're a pattern, but they're connected to something much deeper. A lot of us, it's connected to traumas. 
connected to broken pieces of our life. And somehow it keeps cropping up in these little moments and areas in our life. For some of you, you see it in relationships. You see that this little thing called commitment issues. It's a stronghold. Why? Because it's, it's rooted in something deeper than just the symptom. Does that make sense? That the reason you do what you do is because something has happened to you? And because something has happened to you, it's pushed you into a place where you do certain things in order to self-medicate that thing. Does that make sense? And for us, identifying a stronghold is so important because if we can identify it, we can change it. See, this thing with the stronghold, the reason why they're so difficult to overcome in our life is because oftentimes they just sit there and we think they're cool and they're not really bothering us. But the reality is, is that we are trying to live our life surrounded by them and wondering why we have no peace, wondering why we have no life, wondering why life is hard. And we have these really terrible thoughts about ourselves. It's because we are surrounded by this mess where the enemy has had a foothold in your life and has told you things that God is so desperately trying to remove from your life. See, for us, the problem why we don't end up dealing with strongholds is because we believe that if we don't acknowledge them and act like they're not there, then they'll go away. Or even better, that if I don't actually acknowledge it, it doesn't actually exist. That if I don't acknowledge that that thing happened to me and it marked me in a way and it's changed the way that I view myself, the way that I view others, the way that I trust people, the way that I believe, like as long as I don't look at it, it's not real. As long as I just move my life around it, it won't affect me. And the craziest thing about that, and the reason why this is so important, why I'm like kind of kicking a dead horse with this, is because the very place of you facing it is the very place of your healing. I want to read this. This is a, this is a, a quote uh, from this book that I've read. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. And what this, bu- this book is about essentially is how trauma affects you in such a way that it marks your life physically. That because something has happened to you, you, you move and do things and feel things because of that thing. Does that make sense? So for an example, some of you struggle with anxiety, heavy. Like anxiety is crazy for you. Do you know what anxiety actually is? It is not pressure from present stress. It's not. It's present stress pressed against previous experience. Present stress pressed against previous experience. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, the reason why you're nervous around people is because you've been around people before and something went wrong, something did not go great, you were embarrassed, and now every time you're in that sort of situation, you start to feel something on the inside of yourself rise up that says, I don't need to be here, I need to be somewhere else. Like, anybody, anybody? Where you get nervous about a test because you failed a test before and your parents were so upset with you, now you have this performance mindset that if I don't perform, then I won't receive love. That's a stronghold. Hello. And we just walk around like it's just normal. Like, oh, no, I'm just, I'm an Enneagram three. And I'm like, you know, really like, like this about myself or like, you know what? I just like to worry about things. It's my personality. Like, no, bro. No. Hello. This is not normal. We've normalized things that are dysfunctional. Does that make sense to you? We can't, we can't let dysfunction become normalcy. It can't happen. Otherwise, we start to live these dysfunctional lives, and it's actually cool that it's all there. Does that make sense? Okay. 
I want to read this quote. It says that the emotions and physical sensations that are imprinted during a trauma are experienced in the future not as memories, but as disruptive physical reactions in the present. What that means is, I kind of talked about it for a second, is that something has marked you in the past. It has affected your thought process. It's affected patterns in your life. It's affected your emotions and the way that you feel. The uneasiness that you feel is connected to something from the past. If you don't deal with the past, you can never move forward. Does that make sense? And here's the cool thing about this, the way that God designed us, and the, one of the most beautiful things that I love about God and his creativity is that he has given us an ability to deal with something that is not present that he has given us an ability to heal from something that is not here right now. Some of you are like, well, how do I get over this thing that happened to me? It's like I'm fighting a ghost. And the reality is, is that you are. Some of you had things happen in the past that you had no closure. There was nothing good that came out of it. You were like, I don't know how to move past this thing. There's nothing for me to move past it. And the cool thing about God is that the present moments where you feel those sensations and the way that that trauma has marked you is actually the place where healing can happen. That present moments with God, that God will lead you into pain and difficulty and hard moments in your life where you feel anxious, you feel depressed, you're nervous about everything. He will lead you to that place, not to hurt you, but to give you a means to heal. Because what he's doing, he's opening that wound up and he's saying, hey, we can deal with this right now. And the way that we do that is that we pick up the thing that's been there since you were six years old and we put it where it's supposed to go. That is how he moves in our life. That's how God will allow bad things to happen to you. We think that God is just some bully on an anthill, like, oh, they suck. I'm going to burn them. Like, nah, bro. He's trying to really deal with some deep-seated rooted trauma in your life that could be from something as little as being rejected. As little as thinking like, oh, I'm not as cool as everyone else. That little insecurity that you're carrying, he will keep leading you to a place of insecurity so that he can remove that from your life because he wants health and wholeness for you. Is this helpful? Are you bored? Okay, thank you. Okay, let's go. Good. Not only is he going to bring up present opportunities to address the past, he even says that there are ways that we can destroy these strongholds. Because strongholds, they, they have a tendency to stick around a little bit longer than we'd like. Because it's not as simple as just picking up your pants and putting them in the place that they need to be. Strongholds are things that you have to wage war against. The way that a stronghold would be set up is a fortified place that you couldn't just walk up and just walk in and kill everybody. It's like you couldn't just do that. You couldn't just end it. You have to set up around it where you cut off the supply to the stronghold and then destroy what's in it. Our problem with not addressing present problems is that we allow the stronghold to still be fed rather than it being cut off. The weapons of our warfare he talks about in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about these weapons. Some of you, if you grew up in church, you might know the song. You might know every word, every single one of these 
armor pieces of the armor of God, right? So anybody grew up in church and know those? Anybody? A couple people? I'm going to read a little bit for you. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Hello, there he is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. You know what? I read that and I read what Paul had to say in Second uh, Corinthians and I had a kind of a funny thought. The thought of I could have every weapon that I wanted, but if I don't use the weapon that I have, I'm powerless to defeat the thing that I'm fighting against. I think a lot of us can put on the full armor of God, but not wield the full armor of God. Does that make sense? That we can know as much Bible as we want it. We can have as much, we can be strapped as much as we want to be. But unless you use it, it won't matter. And here's the thing, it can't just be used once. That this fight that we fight is a perpetual fight. After doing all that you can do, Our thing with fighting our fights, most of the time we fight for like two minutes and we're like, oh, I'm done. Temptation, oh, oh God. That was a cool two minutes that I fought that one. Am I lying? Like, am I lying? Like we we get confronted with anxiety and we're like, oh, well, I guess I might as well just roll over because this is my life. Like, how about we stand up and fight? Yeah. That if we have weapons that have the ability to demolish strongholds, that if the Holy Spirit is in us when we have placed faith in Jesus, we have everything that we need if we use what we have. A lot of us wonder why we don't see happiness in life in the things that we're doing. And a lot of times it's because whenever we get faced with any type of difficulty, we give up. When we're faced with any type of resistance, we just yield and go along with it. If we're going to be people who overcome our past, that we overcome the things that we can't get past, we have to be people who presently and interactively fight against the things that are coming against us in the moments that they come against us. We can't just keep living as if we can just deal with it tomorrow or we'll deal with it when we're older, or deal with it when we get married, or deal with it when we can afford to get a counselor, or deal with it when we finally decide to have enough boldness to go ask for someone to pray for us, or finally get into a space where like, you know what, I want community and accountability to say, hey bro, you're kind of living the type of way that's not actually giving you life. And it's not because God doesn't want you to have fun, it's because he actually wants you to have life, and you need to let that go. And you need to deal with what is the reason you're running to that thing. Does that make sense? I think we paint God as this guy who like doesn't want any fun for us and is like, hey man, don't do anything fun. And God's like, bro, I made fun, okay? My way is right. My way is fun. My way is life-giving. We've got it twisted and we've thought bondage is freedom and freedom actually looks a lot of times like obeying God. It's a crazy switch, but I promise there's more life in one than in the other. 
my second point tonight. If we're going to be people who walk in freedom and we deal with the past and we heal from the past and we move forward, we need to be people who disrupt our defaults. We need to disrupt your defaults. I don't know if you know this or not, but a lot of us, we do things without thinking about it. I don't know about y'all, but I've, I've been the type to get in the car and 15 minutes later, you're like, oh my gosh, I was going to Kroger and I ended up at home. What's going on? Anybody been that? Like you just like, like autopilot is just like engaged and you're like, I know I'm supposed to do this and then you're doing something else. Maybe that's just ADHD or ADD. I don't know. Maybe too much Red Bull. I don't know. But that for me, a lot of times I, I, I live my life on autopilot where I'm not, even th- I'm not even thinking about the things that I do. It's just my response. When I'm confronted with something, my natural knee-jerk reaction is what I often step into. Anybody pop off and have anger issues where someone talks to you crazy and you say, you going to respect me. Like that's like your default. Or even the opposite, if someone, someone gets on your nerves, you get passive aggressive back with them because you want them to feel you made me mad and you ought to feel bad about making me feel, anybody, you know, I'm not that person. I'm the, I'm the pop off one. Okay. And there's even others that you're like, you know what? I'm not going to say anything. Everything is fine. It's cool while they're stuffing down all the anger and like hoping that they like catch a flat tire, you know, and just like have the worst thing happen to them ever. But I love you. Have a good day. You, you know, just that person, any, any people that just stuff their emotions, those are default responses. You know that, right? Default is something that you do without thinking about it. We can't be mindless people. We can't be people who just go through life letting stuff happen to us because what that will end up is we'll live a default life rather than a life by design. See, a lot of us, we struggle with thoughts. They just run through our mind day in, day out. They're coming and going. And we wonder why we feel so anxious because we've defaulted to let our thoughts tell us how to be rather than us tell our thoughts how we want them to be. You follow me? Paul talks about this so clearly in verse 5. He says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And the reason why I, I, I made the point we need to disrupt our defaults is that Paul doesn't say you need to think about the way that you deal with your thoughts or that some thoughts need to be dealt with, but that every thought is captured and brought to obedience to Christ. That takes intentionality. That takes taking each thought that you're presented with and saying, huh, instead of just going past that thought, acting like it's just cool and I'm just going to go about my day as normal, I'm going to deal with that thought and bring it underneath the truth, the knowledge of God. I think a lot of times we struggle with taking thoughts captive and bringing them into obedience to Christ because we don't even know what Christ would even say to us about it. We don't even know how God would even talk to us. I think some of us have such a twisted view of how God even would communicate with us that we're like, oh, bring every thought captive. I had a bad thought. God just doesn't know that like that's something I could do. He's like, dude, I made you. I, I know every thought you've ever thought. I know everything about you and you think that you're going to surprise me with the thought? It's crazy. And to think this too, that 
God wouldn't be able to speak into that area that you're hiding from him as well? That your thoughts, that you're like, oh, I don't want to like bring that to God and be like, God, I'm struggling with this, as if he didn't already know. This is, a, this is a cross-section of interaction and change, and this is where healing happens is when you take thoughts captive and you say, I've always thought about this this way. Perhaps, maybe God has a better way of thinking about this. Maybe God actually can say nicer words to me than I'm able to say about me. Some of you need to just stop talking to yourself the way that you're talking to yourself because guess what? God wouldn't even talk to you the way that you talk to you. We partner with a lot of thoughts that aren't from him at all, but for, from somewhere else. And that's the thing about strongholds too, is that if you default to dysfunctional thoughts, all you're going to reap is that same dysfunction. That the power of a stronghold is it has the power that you allow it to have. That a stronghold only has power if you give it thoughts. Does that make sense? If you have an insecurity and you have reasons why that insecurity is valid, well, she's prettier than me and that's why he broke up with me and blah, blah. Like you are literally adding to a stronghold. Do you understand that? And you're going to come into your next relationship thinking the exact same thing. Well, I need to do this, this, and that because if I don't, this is going to happen again. And you can keep feeding your stronghold and not dealing with it. And you can be a 75-year-old woman with the same insecurity that you have as a 13-year-old. And that is not cute, sis. It's just not cute. Because here's the thing. God so desperately wants life for us. We have to be bold enough to believe him. Like we have to be bold enough to believe that he actually has good things for you. I think a lot of you think that God's just like putting up with you. And like you're like, man, God doesn't even like me. I'm a sinner. I can't get right. Whatever. That's your theology. And guess what? God's theology of you is that he's made you in his image. and He's created you and designed you to be in relationship with him. We have defaulted to dysfunction rather than going back to our original design. And that's going to take intentionality. That's going to take setting up shop and saying, I'm dealing with every thought that feeds that stronghold until that stronghold no longer exists. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 12. He is uh, casting out demons, funny enough, and the Pharisees come to him and they say, hey man, you must have a demon yourself. And he's like, yo, how can demons cast out demons? That makes no sense. Y'all are tripping. BSE, Blake Standard Version. Okay. He tells them that. And then he tells them this in verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is talking about himself here, that he is the one, he is the strong man that has come in and he has taken the things, the keys of the enemy and the way that he's used it. He's taken the stronghold and he's gotten rid of it. And he is the one that needs to fill the house is now the issue. Look at this is what happens if you don't do that. Or if you deal with a stronghold, if you actually deal with the root of it and you remove the root, if you don't fill it back with the right thing, it will come back even worse. It says in verse 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house, my stronghold that I previously had. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. So here's for your counseling. It doesn't matter how good your counselor is and how great you deal with what's there. If you don't fill it with the right thing, the same thing's gonna keep coming back. That's a word. 
and goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. See, that's our problem with a lot of our Christianity. It's we deal with the problem, and we put good thoughts, we put good information, we put good theology into it, but we're not filled with the Spirit of God that can change every bit about us. And we wonder why we still keep facing the same thing even after we deal with it. Because some of you, you've like gotten a practice of like dealing with the thing. You're like, yeah, bro, I, I like, I'm with you. Like, I don't want this. Like, my, I want my house clean. Let me go and put this up. There it is. Here it is. Done. But you don't do anything else to fill the space. That whole bucket's about to come back over here. Does that make sense? We need to be people that are presently pressing in to be filled with the spirit of God. Otherwise, we're going to be people who default to every dysfunction that comes our way. We can't run to the physical for spiritual problems either. I know a lot of us, when we are met with the things that we can't deal with, like we can't like physically deal with, like our thoughts, our emotions, our memories even, we're met with those, confronted with them. It makes us feel bad. And what do we do when something makes us feel bad? Some of you either, maybe you cry. I know what I do. I go buy some shoes because, you know, <laughs> ain't nobody cry with some Jordans on. I'm just playing. Um, but we go to physical things to cure and help medicate spiritual problems. That's why some of us go to attention when we get rejected. Why you Snapchatting the same person, 15 different people, the same picture. Like that's, you're doing that for attention. Anybody? No? Just, just That was my generation. I'm sorry. Don't let me put that on you. But we do these things to fill something in us that can only be met in a spiritual way. You can't fight f- spiritual battles physically. That's his point, right? We have to be people who are filled with the right thing. It's not good enough to destroy a stronghold. But it's... It's necessary that we fill it with something else. I think for us, the problem with that is we don't have enough wherewithal or patience to sit with something long enough for it to change us. To sit with a thought that maybe seems too good to be true. You know, there's story after story in this book about a person who had one good thought. It changed everything story in the book of Mark about this woman with an issue of blood. She had it for 12 years, and she tried everything that she could. She went to every doctor that she could go to, and she didn't grow better, but she grew worse. She spent every dollar that she had to try to fix what was wrong, but she couldn't. And then it says, but then she thought that if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. Some of you in this room, you are one good thought away from a breakthrough. You're one good thought away from being free from something you fought for your entire life. You're one thought away, one thought. Will you have the courage to sit with it long enough for it to become real for you? Will you sit with truth long enough for it to shape your world? Or are we too busy to heal and to move on? I think that's something that I definitely struggle with as well. Like, can I sit with something that feels too good to be true? 
Because I think sometimes we know things about God, but don't feel things about God. Anybody there? God, I know that you're a provider. God, I know that you're good. God, I know that your hand's on my life. God, I know that you've not abandoned me. But guess what? I feel pretty abandoned by you right now. I feel pretty unseen by you right now. I feel pretty like no favor on my life from you right now. And what if God is just waiting for you to just really believe him in spite of the difficulty that's in front of you? That same story, it talked about this man who had a daughter who was 12 years old who was also sick and she had just died. And his friends come and they tell Jesus, hey, like, don't, don't bother him anymore. She passed away. It's over. And what does Jesus tell him? Don't be afraid. Only believe. Hope against hope. Hope even when it doesn't make sense. Sit with it even when it feels too silly to even believe. Because that's where faith is. You think about our last time we talked, we talked about Jesus walking on water, and we didn't tell the story of Peter walking on water. It was Peter's idea to walk on water for him to. Jesus, if it's you, tell me to walk on water. I would have picked a lot of other things except trying to walk on water because I've never seen that happen until Jesus did it. You, you, mean, you mean to tell me that that was your idea? Not, hey, Jesus, what's your favorite color? I know that Jesus' favorite color is this, and if it's not Jesus, I don't know. No, if you're Jesus, let me walk on the water. His idea. No one had ever done it before. Talk about faith. I would be curious to see if we have the audacity to believe that God is as good as he says he is and he loves us as much as he says he does. Because I think if we were to take a step in a chance to see that, it would change everything. My last point, if we're going to be people who step into wholeness and freedom and healing and deal with the things that we can't get past, we have to be people who practice obedience. We have to be people who practice obedience. And the key word that I want to point out there is practice. I think a lot of us, we have an idea that practice actually looks, looks more like performance. You practice way more than you perform. Alan Iverson said, we talking about practice? Anybody? Too young? But it's actually practice that enables you to walk in a way. It is practice that lets you change. It's practice that gives you the tools to do the things that you need to do. We need to make a practice, an over and over and over again moment of saying yes to Jesus and walking in obedience. And obedience doesn't seem like a very, like, cute, like, sexy word. You know, it's like, oh, that doesn't seem like a great sermon point. Obedience? I'm good, bro. But our problem is our definition of obedience is a little bit off. Because I don't think we think about it with the outcome in mind. Obedience, in its very nature, is doing the thing that the other person has asked you to do. But why, though? Why would Jesus ask us to walk in obedience? Because he wants us to walk in his way. He wants us to be in one accord with him. How can you walk with another unless you agree? And is obedience not agreement? And is obedience putting yourself in the right position to receive? We have to be people who practice obedience. It's in the text too. It says that we bring every thought, take it captive 
to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You know, I, I thought about this and I, I thought about these moments that I've even had as a father and I've asked my daughter to like, hey, obey what I'm asking you. And it's not always that I'm just like a jerk and don't want her to have fun. Like sometimes I'm like, just trust me. Like I have more life for you on the other side of this than you think. Like I actually know better than you. And I'm asking you to trust me. That's what obedience, it's a position of trust. And I think obedience is hard for us because we haven't learned to sit long enough with him to see that the obedience with him is one that causes deeper relationship, not one that removes it. It's not a dutiful service, but it's an invitation into a life of walking and living like him. The, the one who is the most full of life is asking us to walk in his way, to walk with him. And we think that that's not gonna give us life. I'm reminded of uh, Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua is the second who came after Moses. He was his attendant. He helped him with everything. And the thing I loved the most about Joshua was not that he had a ton of faith and he said, we can take the land even if there is giants. It wasn't even his leadership and the way that he led almost perfectly throughout his time being the leader of the people of Israel. It wasn't any of those things that made me fall in love with the character and person of Joshua. It was this one thing. Back when Moses brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery and into the wilderness before he's, God is leading them into this land that he promised them. Moses set up this tent called the tent of meeting. And what would happen is Moses would go to that tent of meeting. He would sit and he would talk to God face to face. And what was funny is that all the people had the same opportunity to meet with God and to go to that tent, but nobody did except Moses. That they decided we're gonna stand in front of our own tent and worship rather than go to the tent to meet with God. And Moses, he had a pretty big job. He had a million people to lead and he had to deal with a lot of ins and outs. And every time he would leave that tent, Joshua would be there. The thing I love about it, it said that Joshua lingered in the tent, that Joshua was a man who sat with God. He sat with him. And I always wondered why Joshua was able to do the things that he did, how he was able to be strong and courageous like God asked him to, how he was able to overcome so many different battles that he had to fight with a group of people that were pretty worthless and pretty faithless. How did he do it? He did it because he was a man that learned how to sit with God. That he practiced obedience. God, whatever you got for me, yes. You want me to do this? You want me to give that up? Yes. You want me to give up on my dreams and chase something that you have for me? Yes. You want me to say no to this relationship and you want me to wait and believe and trust? that you have somebody for me even when I can't see it happen? You want me to trust you more than I trust myself? Yes, yes. Whatever you got from me, God, yes. That is a posture of obedience. That every time God asks you for something, the answer is yes. God, you want me to trust you even when I can't see a way through? Yes, I'll do it. 
I don't know about you, but I want to be a person who is so consumed with sitting with God and saying yes to every time he calls my name. I want to be, I want to be that guy. I want to be him. I want to lead my family that way. I want to lead my wife that way. I want to lead my daughter that way. I want to lead my friendships that way. I want to spend my money that way. I want to live a life so informed by saying yes to the things of God. That the things that used to sit here and just be all around me were just so easy to get rid of because everything that he had for me was so much better. Even if sometimes that was a harder road than anybody else was willing to take. I think for a lot of us, God is asking you into a moment where your Christianity becomes more than, yes, I believed in Jesus and I said a prayer and I said, yes, I believe you. But more like a life that says, God, whatever you've got for me, it's a yes. That no matter what, it's a yes. That I'll stand for you and it's a yes, even when no one else will. You've got my yes. I believe that if we're people that can just sit with God, hear his voice and say yes, I guarantee you the things that have been stealing and robbing life for you, the messy room that you've been living in will be quickly picked up. And it is in every time that you say yes where it happens. If you would, I want you to stand and I want you to just close your eyes and I want to pray for you. As we go back into this time of worship, I just really want you to have a moment with God where there might be something that he's calling you into. There might be a new thought process that he's asking you to take up, a pattern he's probably asking you to break, something he's asking you to say yes to. And I just wanna pray for boldness for you to say yes. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for moments where we get to just sit with you where we get to just hear your voice and believe that maybe you have better things to say to us than we could ever imagine. That you have a better future for us than we could conceive of. That you have health and freedom for us. But it comes at a cost of saying yes. And so God, in this moment, whatever you are speaking to each and every person in this room, God, I pray that you would give them the boldness to say yes to you. Whether that's a yes to say I need you, Jesus. I've lived my life a certain way and I'm done. I want to live it your way. I want to walk in your way. Maybe it's people that have known you and they've grown up in church and they feel like you're just in a spot that feels a little hopeless right now. Got to pray in this moment that you would give them hope to say, yes, God, that I'm still going to believe that you're good. And I'm going to believe that you're going to make it work out, even if I can't see it. God, I pray that you would just give them boldness to say yes to you. God, I pray that in this song, Lord, you would just lead us into a real encounter, a moment with you where you become real and not just some theoretical information or some idea that we agreed to at one point, but 
person who has thoughts and desires for us and wants to know us. God, I pray that you would mark us. 